This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this witness. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. In this episode, the Whigs sat down with Geoffrey Robertson QC to talk about international law in the context of a war over Nagorno-Karabakh. Geoffrey Robertson QC is a human rights barrister, academic, author and broadcaster. He holds dual Australian and British citizenships. He's a founder and joint head of Doty Street Chambers in London and serves as a master of the bench at the Middle Temple, a recorder and visiting professor at Queen Mary University of London. Robertson has been counsel in many landmark cases in constitutional, criminal and media law in the courts of Britain and the Commonwealth, and he makes frequent appearances in the Privy Council and the European Court of Human Rights. He's published many works on international law and freedoms, including most relevantly for this discussion, his book in 2014, The Inconvenient Genocide, Who Now Remembers the Armenians? Nagorno-Karabakh, a small self-governing democracy of 170,000 Armenians, is settled in a mountainous enclave between uh, their fellow Armenians and Azerbaijan. In the early 1990s, a war between the Azeris and inhabitants of Nagorno-Karabakh, or Artsakh as it's known locally, resulted in 30,000 deaths and a line of control around the border, over which the rival armies have faced off but not fully engaged until a week or two ago when the war kicked off again. Last week, Mr Robertson published an opinion in the Australian newspaper about the war and the Whigs invited him on to discuss that further with a focus on international law. Nagorno-Karabakh raises a complex area of international law. When can territory that is technically part of an existing state secede and declare independence or perhaps join another state? Known as the right of self-determination or remedial secession, it is a right or principle that many states have long been hostile to, but which is slowly moving into the mainstream of international law. What follows is a discussion that we hope you find fascinating, if a little disturbing, and undoubtedly important. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Wigs, a special edition of The Wigs, um, as uh, we're a wig down tonight, unfortunately, with Felicity Graham uh, up in the air, flying across the great state of New South Wales. But in her place, we have, well, of course, Emmanuel Kirkusharian. Hi, Jim. How are you do, sir? And uh, in Felicity's place, we have Jeffrey Robertson, QC. How are you, sir? I'm fine, as well as could be in lockdown in London. And can we introduce our special guest tonight, uh, the Deputy Mayor of Dubbo, Mr. Stephen Morris. <laughs> well played, Jim. Ready to wind the tape and start again with our real special guest. <laughs> Mr. Jeffrey Robertson, thank you so much for being here with us on the wigs. Um, we know you're in lockdown. We know that you're going through, um, you know, uh, the busy schedule that you have. And I can't get back to my native land. Your government won't let me in. It's a, it's a crying shame. My an... right under Magna Carta to return to my native <laughs> land has been severely threatened. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, without further ado, we're going to kick off the, the discussion tonight. Um, it's, it's, it's in, the ball is in Emmanuel Kirkusharian's court to take it away with our first line of questions. Mr. Emmanuel Kirkusharian, take it away. Yeah, so um, thanks for, for coming on, Jeffrey. And, and the reason, I think one of the reasons I reached out to you and asked you if you'd come on is because I read an article that you did in The Australian 
about what's happening in Nagorno-Karabakh in Artsakh right now, which is of course dear mm. to me. And I just wondered if you'd start by giving a bit of background about that and and would sort of take it from there. Sure. Well, I wrote the article because I'm one of the few Australians to have ventured into this beautiful little country, country in the clouds. I call it because it's got lots of high mountains uh, that are capped with clouds, beneath which are thousands of amazing early Christian churches. Armenia was the first country to convert back in 300 AD. And uh, you can find churches almost as old as that in Nagora Karabakh or Artsakh, as it was historically known, a place for Highland Armenians throughout its history. And that history is the reason why it's being bombed and strafed. It's 170,000 people who have their own little democracy. I've been there to actually undertake a study of how democratic they are. And I was, I met all their judges. I met their 45 lawyers. They have for 170,000 people. And uh, I looked at their politics and their elections and so forth. And, and it is truly uh, an independent democracy, although, of course, they are Armenians ethnically, but they uh, rely increasingly, unfortunately, on uh, the Armenian army. They could be a province. They're a bit like they are as to Armenia, I guess, pretty much as Scotland is to England. They're Highlanders. They have their own remarkable history. You go back, uh, this little country was uh, a, a hub of intellectual and uh, uh, cultural development in over the centuries. It was taken by Russia in about 1805, I think, if memory serves, and it's been uh, undergone a census every so often, which has proved that 90% of the people in this area, which is, as I say, a mountainous area, which is flanked by Azerbaijan on one side, by Turkey on another, and of course with a little road that is a lifeline for them to Armenia, which has enabled them to survive. But the story of Artsakh really begins in 1921, when you have Lenin and Stalin setting up the USSR, the Soviet republics, that they would, and they had a Republic of Armenia and a Republic of uh, Azerbaijan. And Nagura Karabakh, for every reason, ethnically and historically, belonged as part of Armenia. But the story is that Ataturk, uh, who of course had the Turkish uh, suspicion of Armenians, persuaded them to give Nagora Karabakh to Azerbaijan. But they gave it as what is termed an oblast, i.e. an autonomous republic within greater Azerbaijan. So from the outset, it had that degree of independence, although technically, as a matter of international law, uh, Stalin gave it 
1923 uh, under the status of an oblast of an autonomous area, uh, he gave it to Azerbaijan. And so uh, later on, the Azeris, we'll call them as everyone does for shortness, uh, the Azeris did a bit of transmigration. They put a lot of uh, Azeris into Nagorno-Karabakh. Of course, there were quite a few Armenians still in greater Azerbaijan. And, uh, but they never, never sunk below about 75% Armenian uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh. And it came to a crunch after the Soviet Union dissolved in 1988, I guess, 1990. And then the racial hatreds that had been uh, kept, I mean, we all remember the Armenian genocide when a million and a half Armenians were slaughtered in the 1915 by the Turkish Ottomans with uh, obvious sympathy from their Muslim friends in Azerbaijan. And those ancient hostilities broke out as the Soviet Union broke down. There were pogroms. Armenians were slaughtered in Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan, in Somgait, and uh, there broke out uh, a war in which both sides, I have to say, uh, committed some war crimes. But it was uh, a time when the people of Nagorno-Karabakh voted. First of all, they voted for unification with Armenia. And then, because they won the war, there was an extraordinary development because the Karabakh army, which had been, uh, hadn't, was formed, in 1988, and uh, it, it worked miraculously to protect Stepanakert, the capital of um, Nagorno-Karabakh, which was low-lying, and there was an Azeri stronghold above it in a place called Sushi. And I think one of the great war crimes of recent times was the bombing and shelling of Stepanakert as the Azeris aimed their guns and their bombs at schools and hospitals in Stepanakert. Uh, it was terrible. I interviewed a lot of survivors. I went to Nogora Karabakh. I'm probably the, one of the few Australians who knows the place mm. uh, to produce a report uh, on it. Uh, it was a report for the, or backed by the Armenian government, so let's declare that. But uh, I was independent, and I was looking at how independent the parliament and the courts and lawyers were. And I decided, after a few visits, that they were, in fact, independent. So it really was when it declared its independence in 1992, after the Karabakh army, with some Armenian support, had uh, sneaked up. It was a brilliant, one of the great <laughs> maneuvers of military history as they sneaked up with an old Russian tank and took the city that was bombarding uh, Stepanakert. And they won 
that war. And uh, in 1994, there was a peace settlement which allowed them to remain in Nagura Karabakh. They had quite a few buffer place provinces uh, that they had taken from the Azeris. And they are, of course, have a lot of Azeri people. And one solution that we might come to is returning some of those provinces. But Nagora Karabakh itself is this wonderful, independent, de facto republic, which, in my view, as an international lawyer, has attained a, a right like Kosovo, like East Timor, to what is called remedial succession, uh, secession rather. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, nothing succeeds like secession, but it's not usually favored in international law unless there is an element of persecution. And that was certainly suffered by the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh uh, during the war that uh, was fought in 1988. They're entitled historically, legally, in every other way, in my view, to uh, be the same as Kosovo and East Timor. But the current situation is really deplorable and, and uh, dangerous. Hundreds of people on both sides are dying because the Azerbaijan has suddenly decided in the last few months, that it will recapture Nagora Karabakh. It will recapture it by war, and it has declared a war of aggression against Nagora Karabakh. It intends to attack, to occupy the country. It will kill civilians, it is at the moment, and it will uh, reclaim the territory and uh, input, I guess a few hundred thousand Azeris in place of the proud uh, Karabakhs who won their right of independence and voted for it almost unanimously in a referendum in 1992. So that is the position where it is uh, very worrying that here on the edge of Europe, both countries are members of the uh, European coalition that is called the, not the European Union, which is a very much closer coalition of 27 states, but the wider 49 state Council of Europe. And here they are killing each other. And here they are, in my view, committing uh, the crime of aggression, which has newly been added to the um, arsenal of the International Criminal Court. But of course, it takes the Security Council to refer the, the matter to the International Criminal Court prosecutor. And there is no sign of that because you have Turkey making warlike noises. It's loathing of Armenians shown by the fact that it still denies the 1950 genocide, and you have Azerbaijan, of course, determined to, to go in and slaughter, if need be, the people of Nagorno-Karabakh, and uh, you have Russia, 
which I think is playing a very dirty and devious game because Russia was responsible for this and Russia has an agreement, a self-defense agreement with Armenia. And whenever I've spoken to Armenian politicians, I say, for heaven's sake, get rid of Russia. You can't trust it. Uh, build up a, an agreement with the European Union. NATO is your only real protection. But of course, they went along with Russia, which has a military base in Armenia, which it isn't using. It's, it's washed its hands of mm. Nagorno-Karabakh. It says it's not part of Armenia in international law. And uh, it won't put any pressure on Azerbaijan for two reasons. Firstly, Putin's oligarchs are in bed with Azeri uh, oil and gas. And that's uh, the great trump card that Azerbaijan has. And uh, secondly, because it's just not prepared to uh, recognize that it is really responsible uh, for this mess. Mm. You mentioned NATO. Turkey is a part of NATO, I think. Is that, yeah. Would that, is that That's a, right. Yeah. So, so it, does that pose a problem in the sense that the, the Turks are, I think, in part at least, it seems, behind this aggression? Um, well, Turkey, as the one Muslim member of NATO and of the uh, alignment with Europe, is enormously important. That is why... Britain and America cannot bring themselves to acknowledge the genocide because Turkey gets neuralgic and takes reprisals whenever any country acknowledges it. When the New South Wales Parliament did some years ago, they banned them, banned all MPs from going to Gallipoli. That's the kind of rather uh, uh, puerile. Uh, retribution it takes and so no one dares i called my book about on the subject the inconvenient genocide because speaking out about it does incur turkish wrath and it's of course genocide denial uh, is rather a continuation of the idea that you can't face up to the fact that uh, turkish people uh, were massively killing Armenians in 1915, uh, it allows the thought that Turkish people are still keen to uh, have them killed in 2020, and Turkey has been assisting. There's no, it's denied it, but then people have come forth to admit that they've been paid, uh, they are Syrians who've been paid by uh, Turkish companies to join the Azeri forces to bolster their war, in effect, their war against Armenia. So Turkey is certainly a problem, and uh, Erdogan's comments have put fire on the, on the bonfire mm. and uh, are very unattractive. Mm. Jeffrey, the... the you said that it's it requires a the Security Council to refer it, and, and that seems unlikely. But if magically somehow there was a referral, does it does really seem like this? There's the conduct of the Azeris at least amounts to criminal conduct in international law. Would that be right? Could you? That's right. It is the crime of aggression, attacking 
another territory, uh, taking the initiative, which they did on the 27th of October, uh, to go in to, as they saw it, uh, reclaim the territory. There was a long lead up where the uh, Azeri president has been beating the drum and offering in, promising some form of invasion. And I think it came when um, Armenia was crippled with coronavirus. It was one of the areas most uh, heavily hit as was uh, Iran, which is just below uh, and actually has a border with Armenia. So it's, uh, it was a time when these areas felt it was ripe to strike. There was obviously an agreement with Turkey and uh, it amounts in my view to the crime of aggression, even though Armenia of course says, well, we're not invading uh, a country, we are taking back this independent de facto republic mm. of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is ours, but it's never been theirs, historically, culturally, or in any other way. And, and, and other, than the, other than Stalin's decision, yeah. which uh, made it this autonomous uh, area of Azerbaijan, but that is a historical, um, <laughs> it was said to have been at the urging of um, Ataturk, but there it is, it's, it's a historical anomaly. And for 25 years, the highland people of Armenia have uh, made it their own. And uh, it should, I suppose, technically become a province of Armenia. But for the time being, it's, uh, it's been an independent republic and entitled, in my view, as a matter of international law, uh, to this right of remedial secession. There's, there's a lot of fear amongst Armenians that I know that there will be an attempt, if, if they were to succeed, to then effectively engage in some sort of ethnic cleansing or removing the Armenian population there. Um, well, that will certainly happen. That is happening. That is happening. A lot of uh, Karabakh people have hit the road for Armenia because they'll be safer there at mm. the moment. It's, you know, the, the war crime is, that's being committed as we speak is the use in particular of Israeli drones. It's sad that Israel, which of course Jewish people suffered the genocide perpetrated by the Germans who had previously been advisors to the Ottoman Turks over the genocide of the Armenians. The mm. two peoples have a lot in common and it's sad to see Israel supply so many uh, drones, um, armed drones that are flown by the Azeris, as the Israelis knew, over the, the, the people of Stepanakert and uh, hitting their schools and hospitals and homes. And uh, that's just one of the sad complications and ironies mm. of this war. Another is, of course, Russia's behavior, because 
it has been making a fortune selling uh, arms to Azerbaijan, and then it sells the same arms to Armenia, but uh, at a cheaper rate because of the of, of the so-called alliance. So I hope one of the things I hope for at the end is that Armenia will see the sense and kick the Russians out, close their base in Armenia because they don't deserve it. Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. There's no sort of, there's no way of tracing back, is there, in, in sort of international criminal law to the people who supply the arms for the crimes that are committed with them, is there? No... Not at the moment, although complicity in a war crime uh, seems to me to be, I mean, we've just pulled out after 27 years in hiding the guy who, uh, from Paris, who was uh, the funder of the genocide in, Rw in Rwanda. Um, the owner of Radio Mill Colleen's, which broadcast uh, the grave is only half full. Who will help us fill it? Mm. And incitement to uh, barbaric conduct in Rwanda. And that was back in 1995. And uh, he's eventually been fished out of Paris and will now go on trial. So complicity uh, is, is a matter of... Uh, great interest at the moment in as a matter of international criminal law but it's difficult to develop that at a time when the security council is polaxed between america and uh, russia it's not impossible in this case if russia were to live up to its uh, responsibilities as the the cause of these problems historically mm. that it might uh, agree not to veto a motion and of course america we wait to see what's happening there but it does have a very strong armenian diaspora particularly in california so they may support a reference but the problem is turkey a co-conspirator and turkey has a lot of uh, it generates a lot of fear about crossing Turkey because it's got uh, it, it's important as a link between West and East. Mm. So what's what's the the oh, sorry, Dustin. Go. Can I ask Jeffrey, what's the uh, international community position generally been on the Azerbaijani claim to be sovereign um, over the territory? Oh, well, that was accepted by the General Assembly of the United Nations back in 1994, where they were trying to uh, reach peace settlement and they accepted the claim, that, which was historic, was true. I mean, in 1991, 1993, uh, sorry, in, I'm going back, um, in 1921, 
Lenin at the urging of Ataturk, and in 1923, Stalin in, <coughs> enshrined in law that Nagura Karabakh, although 94% of the time Armenian, would be allocated to Azerbaijan rather than Armenia, the two new Soviet republics, but would be an autonomous area, an oblast, uh, with a lot of uh, uh, independence. That was the idea, of course, and it broke apart when the Soviet Union broke apart in 1988. But the international law position has never been tested. Mm. There's never been a case because for the last 25 years, obviously, Armenia, uh, rather the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh have made themselves into a democratic uh, republic. And I don't think there's any question about that. But whether they have attained the right of remedial secession that's been accorded to Kosovo and East Timor and other, the, the former Yugoslavian states, uh, remains to be tested. Um, we're sort of limited. So is the General Assembly position? Sorry, man, you go. Oh, no, Justin, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, so is the General Assembly position or the position of all those states basically just based on the fact that Azerbaijan is the successor state uh, to the Soviet Union, therefore it's recognised to have those borders that that republic had as part of the USSR? and then recognition being a key sort of aspect of international law, it just really boils down to that, does it? Yeah, I think so. The, the, the position under international law is that Nagura Karabakh was given by Stalin uh, to Azerbaijan as an autonomous area. It declared its independence from Azerbaijan in 1992, when it won a war for that independence, and it's been a democratic de facto republic ever since. And now the Azeris, claiming from Stalin, uh, want to recapture it and uh, either kill its people or make them flee. And does that, does that amount to genocide in effect? Is that a genocidal intent in, for terms of... Well, I, genocide is difficult, but I think it's clearly a war crime, killing of civilians, ethnic cleansing, uh, yeah. and is really a crime against humanity because it is human beings who are being killed. And at the moment, there was a... Russia broke a certain peace agreement yesterday and the fight the uh, attacks by the Azeris have continued they broke the peace agreement and they intend to continue uh, until they capture the entire area mm. that's pretty clear and they'll have Turkey's support and it's terrible as mm -hmm. these people are killed and uh, civilians, their schools and hospitals bombed, and nothing is being done. It does, uh, of course, it's a time when 
attention is focused on the pandemic and the world, Russia has gone to water. It's not been prepared to take a strong line against Turkey and Azerbaijan, uh, partly because of commercial links with oil and gas in Azerbaijan. And so, and partly, of course, it uh, rather likes the arrangement whereby its weapons are bought by Azerbaijan and vast sums of money to to, to uh, Russian coppers as a result. So <clears throat> for those reasons, it's a classic case of you have international law arguments, you want them tested, you have a crime, a war crime being committed, deliberate killing of civilians with the object of ethnic cleansing, and nothing is done. Mm. Is this something Armenia could take to the International Court of Justice, Geoffrey? It's already taken it to the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, it's obtained an order that the fighting should stop, which the Azeris simply ignored. Mm. So what's the practical way to assert this right of self-determination and... Practical way is to bomb and strafe and kill the Azeris who are attacking. Mm. I'm afraid there is no other way at the moment because the world has turned its back on this uh, remarkable uh, place which is uh, so beautiful. It's got uh, mm. uh, a functioning court system, uh, functioning elected parliament and civil society. It's got uh, free speech, uh, which something that Azerbaijan hasn't. I was watching a program last mm. night about all the censorship that in this authoritarian country, which will, of course, be imposed on Karabakh. They won't have free speech. They won't have the right to peacefully assemble, which they have at the moment, they'll lose all their democratic rights and be under a military government, I suspect. Mm. It sort of makes you question whether international law is really law in, in a, a circumstance like this. It's law, but it can't be enforced, would be my answer. There are times when real politic trumps international law and or keeps it in stasis or keeps it uh, irrelevant to an actual conflict. And this is one case which exposes the weakness of international law. I mean, there is an order from the European Court of Human Rights which uh, ought to be obeyed because Azerbaijan is a member. But when the blood is up and nationalism is rampant and victory is possible, then the Azeris simply ignore the law. There was a terrible case which I think really sums up the attitude, which was the Safarov case. I don't know whether you've heard of that. It was an appalling case where <laughs> NATO was offering a course to members of the Armenian and 
uh, Azeri armies. And one Azeri soldier one day, finding himself next uh, in the next bed with a, to an Armenian soldier, took an axe and chopped off his head. And of course, it was in Hungary and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. And he served a few years and then there was a deal done. Oil and gas was at the back of it between the Hungarian and the Azeri government. And he was allowed to return to Baku to serve the rest of his sentence in an Azeri prison. Well, of course, the minute he landed, he was met by the president. He was elevated to, uh, he was given an award and uh, given a promotion. And of course, he never saw a moment of prison in Baku. And that just shows the level at which uh, a government for nationalistic reasons, when the blood is up and the power has shifted to your side, will ignore international law or even its own recent pledges and will go for the, uh, for the victory and occupation no matter how many civilians, that will mean the death of. Geoffrey, um, what, in your view, should Australia be doing? What can Australia be doing? Well, Australia is an independent observer. Australia is committed to world peace. Australia is committed to human rights and to the International Criminal Court. So Australia should be, I think, supporting Armenia uh, on to the extent that it should at the United Nations and even uh, in, in public pronouncements express its grave concern at the invasion of Nagorno-Karabakh and urge that the Karabakh people should be entitled to their right to self-determination. That may be too much to ask. It may irritate Turkey. It may, it will irritate Turkey and Azerbaijan. But it seems to me the, you see, <clears throat> Let me put it this way. Most independent observers who've actually observed the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh in recent years have said, and I say too, there is an obvious solution. Keep Nagorno-Karabakh independent or make it a province of Armenia, which it is really, and return some of the buffer areas that were captured in the 1992 war to Azerbaijan. So that will be a gain for both sides. It will mean security for Nagorno-Karabakh 
and it will mean that uh, Azerbaijan gets back some of the territory that it lost in the war. And it may mean that, I mean, at the moment, that territory is shared between Armenians and Azeris who get on rather well, actually. Yeah. But uh, that, that uh, the problem is that Azerbaijan won't buy that solution. It wants Nagorno-Karabakh, and it shouldn't have it historically or culturally. Um, they have some remarkable, some unique the carpets, for example, uh, that are admired around the world. They have a, <laughs> they have the worst liqueur I've ever tasted. Of. <laughs> mulberry liqueur that Armenians can't stand, and rightly so. But uh, they do have uh, all sorts of unique things that would be lost if uh, the Azeris uh, retook took and uh, did demolished Nagura Karabakh and all those wonderful Christian churches, thousands, several thousand of them, dating back to uh, 340, I think, AD. Jeffrey, um, if you could indulge us uh, a little bit uh, longer, we want to shift topics a little bit here. We have our colleague, uh, the great Felicity Graham, the Whig Felicity Graham, who's uh, landed and has joined our conversation. Um, Felicity, hello to you, if you can hear us. <laughs> Hello, Wiggs. Hello, Jeffrey. Good to be with you. Hello, yeah. uh, Fantastic. Um, Jeffrey, Felicity has a very important question that relates to the Wiggs and sure. that they've been working on right now. Felicity, please take it away. Jeffrey, it's a bit off topic from what you've been discussing, but we really can't resist since we have you here. Yesterday, the Supreme Court of New South Wales issued a judgment effectively banning political protests until organisers can show that there is zero risk of transmission of COVID-19. <laughs> Some of us find that proposition tantamount to a eulogy for democracy when still in this country, thousands of people are attending football games, people are free to participate in mass mm. gatherings for mm. a whole range of different social and economic purposes. Do you think Australia is suffering because of a lack of human rights standards? And what would you suggest could be done about how to remedy this impasse in terms of the, the constraint on political protest activity in this country? Felicity, I said earlier that despite being an Australian and having the benefit of Magna Carta, I couldn't travel back to Australia. So I haven't been keeping up. I did read of one University of Sydney demonstration that was uh, closed down by the cops. And I thought that was ridiculous when they were, it was a Black Lives Matter, I think, demonstration. But I would like to read the judgment before commenting on it, obviously, as uh, any lawyer would. But it is a difficult balancing act, obviously, between public health, which sometimes requires uh, everyone to conform if there is danger of a virus spreading, and the right to express yourself and the right to peaceful protest. And it's generally resolved 
um, by and, and ignoring how it's resolved in America, which it isn't, because Trump rallies uh, invariably feature people who aren't social distancing and aren't wearing masks. But in this context, I feel that if people as a matter of conscience feel that they can hazard uh, participation in a demonstration, they should be entitled to do so, subject to uh, undertakings by the organizers which are enforced that everyone will be wearing masks and that there will be a degree of social distancing. This is now quite common in even in Britain where we've had to take very strict in some areas uh, lockdowns and, and require everyone to participate uh, but that is not the case with demonstrations which are permitted to go ahead. Uh, so there is a compromise solution, I think. Uh, but I, as I say, I need to read the judgment to see what it said. I think there have been a number of cases where demonstrations have had to uh, go, take court action to in order to go ahead well thank you thank you very much jeffrey uh, with your time it's 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 so kind of you to give it up it's sunday morning for you um i, I know you've complained about being in lockdown but it, it really is an honor <laughs> for myself <laughs> and the wigs um especially just to be graced with your presence at all um so well it's rather urgent it's uh, a case of people whom I knew, judges and lawyers too, I saw them all, who are at risk of being mm. slaughtered by uh, an aggressive, illegal attack. Absolutely. And the world isn't taking notice. Well, thank you for drawing light to it. Um, our listeners really appreciate it. And I know myself and the Whigs really appreciate it. So uh, thank you for your time. And look, if yeah. when COVID ends, Please grace your fair home again so we can have you in the studio. <laughs> Can't wait. Thank okay. you very much. Thanks, Thanks Jeffrey. Bye Thanks, bye. Jeffrey. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Hey, it's Jim Minns here. For the final time, I just want to remind you all that you can also follow us on Twitter at Wigs Podcast. And it is there that you can send us your questions and we'll answer them on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Minns. 